Our Father, we pause tonight to thank you for so richly blessing us with life, with eternal life. You've made us twice and with the spiritual food that feeds our spiritual lives so that we can walk after the Spirit. We can be led by the Spirit and not walk after the flesh. Father, if the flesh gets in the way, we won't be able to enjoy what the Spirit has for us. So we ask that you give us focus, enable us to concentrate, and by that concentration and your Spirit's power, derive the nourishment we need for our growth. We want to grow. We want to serve you wisely and maturely. We know that takes radical attention to your word and a disregard of the world, of all the distractions, of what the flesh would bring. We pray for that focus in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn your Bibles, please, tonight to Isaiah chapter 28. I'm uh, sorry, Isaiah 31. You know, we're not going backwards. Isaiah, <laughs> full steam ahead. Um, Isaiah uh, chapter 31, which we briefly worked through all nine verses last time, and we're really going to dive into chapter 32. I wanted to do all of 32 tonight and uh, was not able to, and God knows better than I do, uh, how much of the word we can cover in a, in a visit. I think that what we're going to do tonight has been rarely enjoyed by the body of Christ in preaching. And the reason it is, it's true is because Isaiah is, in this portion of Scripture, giving oracles of God's wrath uh, because of their rebellion, because of Israel, the, the southern kingdom, and Judah's rebellion. And he's warning them of discipline, and it's national, and it's clearly the consequence of violating the covenant stipulations of the Mosaic law. And they've gone into idolatry, and it's a pretty straightforward message. And people get, in their English reading, they kind of get just bogged down with it's the same message, but um, it's not always exactly the same message. And sometimes the art of how Isaiah does it just leaps off the page. And I contend that that's what's happening in especially chapter 32, as we'll get into it tonight. Um, it isn't only what he says, I want you to watch, it's also how he says it, and it's a lot tonight like the Proverbs. A lot of what we'll read sounds really proverbial. So I'm geeking out, I am nerding out at the Hebrew poetry of Isaiah chapters 31 and 32, especially chapter 32 tonight, and I encourage you to join me. And, uh, but it's not just in the presentation, it's what he's saying, it's the concept, and there's a great surprise for us tonight because we're going to hear of what it'll be like in the coming kingdom when we who today are longing for righteous government and are never satisfied with righteous government under any national configuration, under any legal arrangement, under any effort humans have had to bring forth righteous governance uh, out of sinful fallen humans in the position of power, positions in the halls of power, um, we're going to hear that no, that's coming. And it's beautiful in its presentation, the first five verses of 32. But we've got to get, we've got to figure out what's happening in the passage and the structure. We're in 31 and 32 of Isaiah where it's the fifth woe for those who go down to Egypt. In this structure of the six woes of Isaiah 28 through 33, as you've heard me say dozens of times. And the two pieces really look like, uh, to overgeneralize, oversimplify, that there's a problem with relationship because they don't pay attention to God's word, so they don't have a relationship with God. And there's a, a special foolishness of trying to deal with God's discipline. That's the section we're in. Um, they're trying to deal with God's discipline by recourse to human elements, human agency. You can't fight God with humans. That's stupid. It's, it's ignorant. It's absurd. But it makes sense to them because they don't think they're fighting God. 
And that's kind of a summary of Isaiah chapters uh, 28 through 33. We're in this chunk here. Do you see what part we're in? It's for you. You see what part we're in? We're in chapter, Isaiah chapters what? 31 and 32. And what's that section about? Do you see what that's about? Isaiah 31 and 32? It's got a square around it. What does it say? Woe, those who go down to Egypt. Now, do you know what woe means? When you see something on the screen, you should understand it. I expect you to understand it. If you don't understand it, I expect you to leave understanding it later. Let's figure out what does woe mean? Woe is an English word that's just translating hoy. The Hebrew, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of interjection in Hebrew, and it's saying there's something bad. It's saying there's been a death or there's going to be a death. It's woe is me, that's bad, oy vey. That's what this means. And so he's, he's saying uh, there is coming catastrophe for the people I'm talking to. That's what he says when he gives woes. Did you know that this occurs in the book of Revelation? One of the trumpets is a series of woes. And it's pulling right out of Isaiah, right out of the Hebrew prophets. The most... Hebrew book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. It's the most illusory, the allusions, not illusory, allusory book of the, old, of the New Testament with the most allusions to the Old Testament. That would be the book of Revelation. And if you don't get with the Hebrew prophetic statements, then you really have no access to what's happening in the references and the allusions in Revelation. Then we're all building. We're constantly building toward that uh, understanding. And I think the more you sweat in the Old Testament, the less you bleed in the book of Revelation. But anyway, Woe to those who go down to Egypt. Now, why are they doing that? Why are they going down to Egypt? Because the Assyrians are going to get them and they need to find somebody that'll help them fight the Assyrians. Now, do y'all remember by way of review why that's stupid? Why is that dumb to go get the Egyptians to help them fight the Assyrians? Because God is bringing the Assyrians. So it's not the Assyrians, it's the Assyrians with God behind them. And you can't fight God. And they're, but they don't, they're, not, they're, they're atheists in their approach. They don't believe that God is a factor. Reviewing Isaiah 31, let's run through it really fast, 12 verses. What are those who go down to Egypt for help? Upon horses they lean or lean, lean for support and they rely upon chariots because many and upon horses because they're exceedingly numerous. They do not look upon the Holy One of Israel. Verses one through, uh, four, one through four are this discussion of woe to them. And Yahweh they do not pursue. Furthermore, he's wise. He will bring evil. His words he will not cause to return. He will rise against the house of those who do evil and against those who make calamity. See if you can read along with me on the English right up here. See if you can read along with me. And Egypt is man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Duh. See, you're, you're, you're living as though all there is is the flesh and blood you're dealing with. You're not thinking of God. That's the obvious problem throughout the passage. The Lord will stretch out his hand he will, and he will stumble, he who helps. The helper, the Egyptians, they're going to stumble. And he will fall, he who has helped. Judah, they're going to fall. So both are just going to be now uh, in the path of the lawnmower is the idea. Together they will all perish. For thus the Lord, says the Lord to me in verse 4, as the, he growls, who the lion, the, the young lion upon his prey, which they are called upon it, a band of shepherds, from their voice, he will not be frightened, and from their noisy provocation, he will not cringe. I promise it isn't all interlinear tonight, but this part is, I know. From their noisy provocation, the lion won't cringe. Thus, the Lord of hosts will go down to fight against Mount Zion and against her hill. Okay, what's God doing? What is God doing? God is going to bring discipline in wrath against Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom and its capital. He's going to fight them, and that's clear. 
And verse five is weird. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect. But the word could mean surround Jerusalem. It's ambiguous. He's going to surround them. He just said he's going to be like a lion to lay, you know, lay waste. And now without much transition, just a simile like flying birds. So the Lord of hosts will protect or surround Jerusalem to, same word, surround or protect and to deliver. That's not ambiguous. This is salvation. We just turned a corner. We got from God's wrath as a lion to a flock of birds protecting. And that's the deal. That's the, this is the, the prophets of doom and deliverance. There's wrath for wickedness and God is going to have his way and deliver his people. And they're both true. That's the prophets of doom and deliverance. It's always evident in Isaiah. To spare and to rescue, return. See, because of this statement that God is going to deliver his people, you receiving this message now, see Isaiah, his name means salvation of Yahweh. He's saying, please, anytime you, you want, you can go back to the Lord. And, and God told him, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to see what you're saying. They won't understand. You just keep making them more and more and more responsible for the wrath that I'm going to bring. But here he, he offers, return to him against whom you've made a deep opposition, O sons of Israel. For in the day, in that day, and now we're pro pro prophesying about uh, God's deliverance of Judah from the Assyrians. And that day, every man will reject his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which your sinful hands made for yourselves. And Asher, that's the Assyrian, will fall by a sword not of a man, and a sword not of man will devour him. And we think this is directly, literally fulfilled by, as literal as, as I mean, it's very, it's literary, but it's also literal. God brings through his, uh, through his own agency or through an angel, he destroys 185,000 Assyrians outside of Jerusalem. This is what happened. And it wasn't a human. There was no uh, David with a sling. There was no intervening intermediary that was directly the hand of God, uh, unless he used angelic agency. Not the sword of a man will devour him, and he will not escape from the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers, and his rock from panic will pass away, and they'll be terrified from the standard, his princes declares the Lord. That's chapter 31, and you can't really do 32 without doing 31 because they sort of stand together. The Lord whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem, and we end chapter 31 with don't mess with Jerusalem. Why not? Because you're going to burn yourself on God's forge. You don't want to go mess with that. That's hot. Don't touch it. That's good advice. What we just saw was in verses 1 through 4, woe to you for relying on Egypt. Did we see that? Verses 1 through 4. What we also saw was a hinge in verses 5 through 6, God will protect, deliver, and restore, which is a shocking hinge because it's right after saying he's going to act like a lion and destroy them and, and fight against them. Now, this is interesting. In the near term, in Isaiah's day, the Assyrians did destroy or capture, subjugate every city in Judah except Jerusalem. They didn't quite capture the flag, but they had everything else tamped down. They never got to checkmate, but they were ch chasing the king around the board. It was all but done. And God brought uh, this, this mighty, miraculous deliverance. But your hinge shocks you at verses 5 and 6 after God's wrath. And then the Assyrian crisis would end, as we just read in verses 7 through 9. Because why? Because Jerusalem is God's, God's furnace. If you want to get burned, go mess with it is the point that the Assyrians would find out. 
Chapter 32, though, takes us very interestingly in verses 1 through 5, a prophecy of the righteous king who will rule. Righteous reign is coming. Right after saying that the Assyrians would be defeated, there will be a righteous king who will rule and righteous princes. And then there's Proverbs sounding things about the fool, the rogue, and the noble in verses 6 through 8. And you could argue verses 1 and 1 through 8 are one piece. Because in Israel, in Judah, generally the, the people and their rulers are fools and rogues. But what they need is Christ. They need a ruler who is a noble, who is a righteous person in his character. And so he rules righteously. And we're going to hear one of Isaiah's many beautiful prophecies of the coming reign of Messiah in verses 1 through 5. The wisdom, though, is that if you're a fool, those that you rule over will suffer. If you're a rogue, you will say you help the poor, but you will oppress them, as we'll see in verse 7. And then, but the noble is the foil, is the, is the opposition. But then the, the tone changes in 32. 32 verses 9 through 14 will be specifically addressing the women. And I believe what he's saying is the nation's going to suffer. It's going to suffer deprivation because of God's wrath. One of the many things God said he would do would be bring warfare and famine and uh, economic disaster and, and all these things. And they did encounter these things. And he, he says it from the perspective of the women who don't have the grapes to crush or the wine to, to vent. Uh, They don't have the vintage to have and enjoy, and they're going to be bereft, and they're going to be miserable, and there's this description uh, affecting the women, which we'll not likely get to tonight, but there will be a restoration in verses 15 through 20. Women, beat your breasts for what you're missing in verses 9 through 14, but then again, it turns back. It's the prophets of doom and deliverance. There will be a restoration. And so God tells of his discipline, but he tells of his blessing. And this is an interesting moment for all of us in terms of wisdom. Which do you choose? The nations are in an uproar and the kings of the earth are devising a vain. The people are devising a vain thing. The kings are rejecting God. But how happy, to skip to the end of Psalm 2, are all who take refuge in him. Which do you choose? It is a choice. It's a daily choice. You could argue it's a moment by moment choice. And I think the choice is obvious here. Now, here at church, when we're feeling churchly, we're just saying a churchly hymn, sitting in churchly seats. Our backs are telling us that, oh, I'm in church. We know that we're having holiness, uh, you know, in gobs right now because we're all together and we all have our church faces on. Um, and we know it's obvious that you trust in God and you believe he's there and you believe what he wants is more important than what you want. You believe that you should disregard your feelings and especially your fleshly urges and desire what God desires. We all know this now, but what about then when the thing that besets you, the thing that you're struggling with comes knocking? Maybe for some of you, it's the arrogance of boredom that you, you think life is boring because you just are, are uh, given to your momentary feelings and, and your feelings are, are God to you. Uh, the Philippians guy comes to mind whose God is his stomach who sets his mind on earthly things. What about then? Remember this moment. Right now, as we're thinking about this, it's very obvious that God blesses Israel when they obey him and he curses them when they disobey him. And that's what you have in this passage. But what's interesting is the eschatological restoration, the end time stuff that he kind of hints at, that he, that he points to way down the prophetic future. That's not in question. It's not contingent on them per se. It's God's going to do this. Now, they, there will happen some things that Israel eventually will turn to him, but he's not, he's not just uh, dependent 
on their performance, he's going to bring this about. They are going to respond to him, and he will bring this restoration, as we'll see. All right. Behold a king, this is the New American Standard, verses 1 through 5. A king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. I believe that's a promise about the eschatological future. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter for the, from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. I believe that that might read uh, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. Uh, maybe. Is that what your King James is saying? Because that's what beneath the cross of Jesus says. And every once in a while, I'll be translating along in my Hebrew uh, to English work, and I'll think of a hymn that says, I think they got that from here. So you can do a little fun research. I didn't check the English translations, which one they got that from, but that's probably where um, beneath the cross of Jesus got its words. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty, literally, the heart of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. Now, what does that remind you of? Does that remind you of anything that I talk about in Isaiah all the time? That is Isaiah 6. You keep preaching because if they, if they hear, they'd be able to return. If they'd listen, if they'd, if they'd see with their eyes or hear with their ears, this is the, the, the undoing of the kind of the curse that God has on rebellious Judah when you read Isaiah 6. And that's, that's an interesting comparison. This is what's going to happen in the future. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. And that is awesome. And we'll see why by and by. Okay, let's look at it in some detail. In verse 1, you have our, one of our favorite words, behold. Behold is the word uh, hine, and here it's hen. Behold unto what is right, sedek will reign a king. Now, my Hebrew students are excited right now because we have the word for rule, MLK, and the word for king, MLK. He will king a king is really what that says in Hebrew if you're Hebrew listening. We have other words. We have kings rule. They have king's king as a verb. The ruler rules. Okay. But this is this melech. This, this is the word for king. And leaders unto justice, mishpat, justice will rule. But I'm excited about that one too because that's the source S-O-R for the, the ruler, or Sar, I should say Sar, will Sarar. Sometimes I get so excited, I just have to pay attention to some details. Now, this is the, the Hebrew in English, the English in Hebrew order. Doesn't make for good written English, understand, but you and I can read our English Bible and we can study this together in its order and have a little fun. Now, your interlinear Hebrew Bible, they have them out there. They're not super expensive. You can do this with the Hebrew interlinear, but it's very hard if you don't know Hebrew, even with an interlinear, because you're, you're, this, the words seem like squiggles. And, um, and I know that very well, and I um, try to help as best I can with people that want to learn Hebrew to teach it. And it's, it's a fun thing for me to see these things, and I certainly lean on the various tools at my disposal, like lexicons and the software and so forth. But anyway, you have unto Sedek and unto Mishpat. This is the direction or the standard by which these 
this administration is being prophesied is going to administer. It's going to be in what is right. Sedek is a big word. It's this word right here, T-S-E-D-E-Q. And there are several words related to it. And Sadaka is not just a, a teeny bopper singer from the 50s. Sadaka is a Hebrew word that means righteousness. It's the feminine conceptual word. This is the masculine noun that is like it. It's not the conceptual word of righteousness, but it is sometimes translated equity and not in the modern sense, that the king does the right thing, that, that it's practical, if you will, in its righteousness, and it's a synonym at least for righteousness. This other word that is the standard of judgment goes right with righteousness, doesn't it? What is it? Justice. And that is the best that you could ever desire in rulership is righteousness as a principle and justice in this execution carry forth in the choices that the rulers make. And all the things that we say about faulty government, all the things that we say when they're doing something that we don't like, if we really think it through, the reason it bothers us, we need to get from the political uh, platform questions to the ethical concerns derived from our biblical principles so that we could say that this is the problem. What's happening is contrary to righteousness. It is unjust that this is taking place. And this is really the beauty. Now, here's the problem of the time in which we live. And it's one reason that the culture that is administering this, for example, our country, the culture administering our 250-year-old stuff can't work is because there was a common consensus of the originators and recipients of our government and its original instantiation, there was a common consensus that there is a sense of absolute truth derived from the character, desires, and attitudes of the creator with whom we must all deal. There was a theistic perspective that meant there was a fixed, stabilized sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false. That statements about truth correspond to the actuality of truth within the framework of a creator who supervenes everything. Even the deists concluded this. There was a right and wrong because there was a creator. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow the deists. I wouldn't read them. I wouldn't spend any time on the deists uh, necessarily. But I'm just saying when you have a theistic perspective that there's a creator with whom we must deal, um, then then. Uh, you can actually start talking about the ruler doing the right thing. Here's what's wrong today. Today, we're all pretending like the stuff we learned starting in the 70s or 60s and taking its full flower in the 90s and really we're just, uh, who knows now, that the truth is in the eye of the beholder. That the truth is what you perceive it to be and that can be truth for you. This is how you get transgender as a legitimate category because it's the, it's the individual's perspective on self that will be the determinant of the actual morality for that self. Un un except me, except people like us who will say that the truth is what God says it is. That person has to be rejected because they break the paradigm, they break the system of the, the little individual gods floating around. All the people are determining what's right and wrong, what's true and what's not true. And so you could never really get this kind of idea out of government with people who buy into the popular ideas of truth and justice and righteousness because righteousness is, is, a, is a subjective category, right? 
What's interesting, though, is we don't hear so much about postmodernism today in popular discourse because we need to have a stabilized sense of righteousness in order to beat up the people that want to beat up. And so now we've changed all the categories and we've kind of played musical chairs and we, we got everybody thinking that truth and righteousness is in flux. And now we're, now we're settled. The new right, the new morality, consent, the new morality, whatever the person wants, new morality, let the children be trans, let the children be uh, puberty blockers, let children, all this wickedness. And it is very much Isaiah 1, evil is good, good is evil. But but I want you to see that that standard of righteousness and justice and rulership is coming. And Satan can't prevail against it with his lies about the nature of truth and righteousness and justice. It's coming. And this is exciting. Christians, we are supposed to live our lives not looking to November. We're supposed to live our lives looking to the coming kingdom of Christ. And November is not going to bring the coming kingdom of Christ. But you and I have duties regarding November and we can do them. We can shoulder the load and we can hold our nose. We can do what we need to do because we're looking at the coming kingdom of Christ because we're excited about what God said he would do. And we're optimists, not after the flesh, not after man's prospects, but after what God can do. Because there's coming a king unto what is right. He will reign a king. And then this is really fun. His source. Sorim, his sorry, I keep saying Sorim, Sarim, his leaders. I remember this word for prince or leader right here, this word Sar, because it sounds like czar. But czar is comes from Caesar, so there's no, I don't think there's any relationship. But it does mean ruler or leader, subordinate leader. This word is translated princes in my New American Standard. And it means someone delegated with a lesser authority than the, the melech. Melech is always the sovereign, the chief, over whatever the, the thing is. The king is the way we say that in English, the king. All right, so the king will reign, the leaders will rule, and the words, malach, this is the word for reign, malach, M-A-L-A-K, malach. The king is a melech, and you change the vowels, same consonants, when you change the vowels, that's how the words inflect. So the verb and the noun, the king will king. Sar, the sars, will sarar. And in Hebrew, they're hearing that. Kings are going to king. The king will king and the leaders will lead. The rulers will rule. That's the, the way it sounds in Hebrew. And I think that is so neat. I also think it's fascinating that in this structure, look at the purple part. You see the red part? The red part's the standard of rulership. The blue part are the, the verbs, what will happen. The purple part is in the middle. The purple part is the center in a center-seeking structure. Anybody remember what that's called, just for fun? That's a chiasm or chiasm from the Greek letter key, shaped like an X, meaning in the center. X marks the spot. It's, it's shaped like the half side of an X. And so this center point, we believe in Hebrew poetry and Hebraic discourse in the New Testament, that this is designed to focus your attention, that there is a king and there is an administration in the future that will be righteous. Oh, we've been talking about this some. Do you know how you figure into that? Do you know how you relate to this administration of King Jesus? Because that's what he's talking about, I'm certain. 
because of Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 4 and the other places where he does is Isaiah 9. For unto us is born a, a child, uh, for unto us a child is born and a son is given and on him the, on the government and, and on his shoulders the government will, it's, the, it's Isaiah chapter 9. The promise of this coming king who is also a son, who is also a child, um, it's clearly the 714 uh, virgin conceiving in birth to a son called God is with us, Emmanuel. This is so Christological in Isaiah. And here in this context of wrath and the women and, and, and what you're about to hear about the, the horror of the nation from the women's perspective, it's so awful when a military force conquers a people because the armies do whatever they want to the women and children. And it's it's, it's, it's the worst. It's the worst. Here before we talk about that, we have this look up, look out at what's coming. There's coming a righteous administration and you, my son, you are here in this verse. I believe that those who rule with the king are marked out in uh, Romans chapter eight as sons of God who are also called fellow heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him so that we'll be glorified together with him. And those sons of God, those fellow heirs with Christ, those believers in Jesus in this age that he's talking to in Romans 8 are part of how God the Son in his coming kingdom glory will reveal us to establish, the, to remove the curse from the planet. You can read about it in Romans 8. It is unspoken. They don't talk about it in eschatology enough, but it's very clearly the destiny of the church that when Jesus brings his millennial kingdom of Revelation 19 and 20, we are with him. And by bringing us along, somehow our revelation to, to the earth brings the freedom from the curse. So the Isaiah 2 and 4 stuff about no war and the animals aren't fighting us anymore is involved in you and me being presented to planet earth in glory. I don't know much more than that, but I know that these are things the Bible co co coordinates. And again, the, the way to, to, to validate this, go be a Berean, read Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 19. You need to read earlier to know what a son of God is in Romans 8, 19. But that's the topic. It's talking about what's going to happen to us. We did it on Sunday recently. Oh, this is so exciting. <sighs> Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Everybody with me on who he's talking to? Paul is talking to Roman Christians in the church age, us. Paul says himself, me, and then all y'all, and that together makes us. And that's the topic What's going to happen with us? For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. Somehow, I don't know how, we are involved. I don't think we deserve this. This is an interesting honor and glory that's been marked out for us. In the future. Did you know this is coming for you? I mean, Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 6, you're going to judge the angels. So, Think about that. You, you can, don't need to sue each other and go to unbeliever courts of humans. Don't you know you're going to judge the angels? You better figure this out internally is the point in that passage. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the sons of God. The same people in verse 18 
For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our resurrection, for the adoption of our, our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, wait eagerly for it. The language that Paul gives is so dense. There's so many things that he's saying that when you just read through, you kind of say, oh, I wonder what's going on there. But think about what he just said. The, the Genesis chapter three curse on the ground that Adam got as his curse, that you're gonna fight the ground to, to bring forth food. That curse is removed by your revelation to planet earth in the coming kingdom. That's why Paul, what Paul's doing in this passage is saying we have to suffer now, but we won't be suffering then and we can look forward to it. The trouble now isn't worth comparison to the glory that's coming. And, and so he kind of lets us know and part of what, what glory is coming is you get to be somehow part of how God removes the curse from planet earth, from, from his creation. That's way better than don't eat beef or drive cars. See, the real problem with the earth is the curse. And it isn't our cars. It isn't carbon dioxide. It isn't that the earth is getting warmer and there's getting to be more food for the plants. That's not the problem. The problem is much bigger and it is man-made. I mean, God cursed the earth because of man's sin. It's God-made, but it's in, because of man's understand interaction with God. So I think this is phenomenal. I haven't seen you in Isaiah very much. I haven't seen you, believers in Jesus Christ in this age in Isaiah, because I believe in the church. I believe it is a new body composed of Jew and Gentile and one new man in Christ, baptized into Christ by the, the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I think that is what defines us, but the coming king and his subordinate leaders, that is the administration of the kingdom. Believers, we need to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And the way we do that today is we make disciples who will rule in the coming kingdom. In verse two, each the king and his rulers will be like a refuge from the wind. Doesn't that sound beautiful? I want to be uh, something good for people. I want to be a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm. See, today we want to go to the people in power and get justice. We want to get uh, some sort of relief they, that's how people think. I just like relief from crime, from evil, from the wickedness, from the privation, from whatever. Give us freedom to live, to enjoy what God's given us. They'll be like a refuge from wind, like a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry region, like a shadow of a mighty rock in a parched land. This is what the administration of King Jesus will be like. You will be a benefit to those under your administration. Wouldn't that be nice to be a benefit to everyone? Well, that's what Jesus will be, and that's what this administration will be. Does that sound familiar? There's a way God wants you to behave toward people. He cares about how you treat people. Have you thought about how God wants you to behave toward people? It's kind of a big deal, especially in the New Testament, because it builds on the old, but it goes further than the Old Testament. You have the Holy Spirit. And what God tells you, Jesus Christ tells you, are your marching orders. And for example, John 13, 34, 35, what does he tell you? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
as I've loved you, that you also love one another. Does that sound like this? Like this administration, these people will be a benefit to those that they're administering. The world is blessed by their presence. What I'm telling you is you and I are being trained. We're being groomed for what's coming. We have a high calling. It's to be like our father. Where in the Bible, just out of an interesting pop quiz that just occurred to me, I sometimes have to switch over in professor mode. Where in the Bible would I find uh, walking in love to be uh, being like God, the father? Where would I find that that is how I am supposed to be like my father in heaven? I'll give you a hint. It's in the New Testament. It, for first John, absolutely, because, because um, you're supposed to uh, love, and if you don't love your brother, how can you, if you hate your brother, how can you say you love God? And that's part of first John that, that I think of, but there are other places. Somebody else? Yeah, First Corinthians 13 says that without love, all the spiritual gifts are worthless, is the summary in that chunk, First Corinthians 12 through 14, on spiritual gifts. All that giftedness without love, worthless, wasted. What else? Where does the Bible say that imitation, I just gave it away, of God is walking in love? Okay, abide in me and I in you. Is that what you're thinking? Okay. Okay, and the upper room discourse is all about love. And I'm going to stop playing what am I thinking with you. I'm just going to tell you what I'm thinking. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, the apostle Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. That's the Father. As beloved children, and so walk in love. And, and he, he says, as Jesus gave us a pattern, that we walk in his steps. Jesus, God the Son, is in the flesh a, an exemplar for us to walk like him so that we're walking like God the Father. And this is, this is huge that we have this anticipated future. You're supposed to do this now. I'm not resurrected yet. I'm not glorified yet. What we're talking about is a glorified governance, but we're, we're being groomed, I think, now in this academy phase to be exactly this. And so we haven't attained yet, but we're advancing to that which we've uh, been given. Verse three, they will not be blinded. The eyes of those who see and the ears of those who hear will be fully alert. Okay, look up here real quick. What do you see? Can I walk around? Joel's got to change the camera around. So look, look up here. What do you see uh, about the top line? Can you look? What do you see about the top line? And they will not be blinded. You see that? What do you notice about the bottom line? It says we'll be fully alert. Okay. Are those on the same space as the other lines or are they further over? And then the middle part is, is indented, right? Do you know what you call that? That's called a chiasm. What's it called? A chiasm. And what that means is that he switches the order of what he, what he says in the second part because he wants you to focus on that, that category. They won't be blinded. The eyes of those who see and the ears of those who hear will be fully alert, meaning, meaning the people. We're talking about a godly people under godly governance. We can talk all we want about the election, but understand the outcome of elections, if they're properly being conducted, are reflective of the people electing them. So it's really taking the temperature of your group, of your people, if, if you're having legit elections. The heart, we talked about the eyes and the ears, now we're at the heart. 
Your Bible says mind, mind, my Bible says mind, and it has a note, and it says literally heart. Now, why do they do that? Because the doctrine of the heart in the Old and New Testaments is not about our feelings. It's about the inner core of our being. It's not about a physical pump either. It's the inner core of your person, and it includes the mind. It includes the conscience. It includes your joy and sorrow. It includes the inner immaterial part of you. And the heart, the place of thinking, the thoughts and intents of the heart, the heart of the rash or hasty, this is kind of a foolish thing, will understand knowledge. Those who otherwise would be uh, incapable of knowing will know the hasty. And the tongue of the stammerers, those who can't talk, will hasten to speak clearly. And notice the, the, the little play on words, hasten to speak clearly. They'll, they'll, they'll have fluidity of speech, but they're stammering. There's some sort of restoration that's happening here. See, the blind can't see and the deaf can't hear and those who stammer can't speak clearly and, and the rash, the hasty person can't think. This is like starting to sound like the Wizard of Oz here. This is the restoration of all things. This is what the kingdom's going to be like and the people will be worthy. The people will be ruled in righteousness. It's going to be fantastic. Godly people. There's a, there's a southern gospel group. that like, My kids know this song very well called The Blind Man Saw It All. Ask the blind man he saw it all. And it's this funny thing about this guy that, that you know, in the days when Jesus was doing miracles, he says, I was coming home and uh, a man ran past me. I said, hey, what's the hurry? He said, um, did you hear what Jesus did? And then he goes through all the different people. He says, well, he, um, the, the, um, the, the deaf man heard Jesus' voice and, and the girl that couldn't speak was telling me about how the crippled man got up and walked away. It was all the things that Jesus did to restore. These were all portraying the kingdom. They're all portraits of the king is here, he's with you, and he's going to restore all things. And that's kind of the way this language sounds. We have so much to look forward to. He will not be called any longer the fool noble. I think this might be my favorite part. Now, pardon the interlinear translation because I'm going to put it in color in just a second. But he will not be called any longer, that's the Hebrew order, the fool noble. Anybody know what the word for fool is here? This is one of our favorite Hebrew words. This is David's buddy. This is naval. Naval, it's the word for fool. It's one of the several words for fool. Uh, Preachers in the past might have called him Nabal. But the word is naval, and it means fool. It has nothing to do with with our military forces on the sea. N-A-B-A-L, pronounced N-A-V-A-L, naval. All right, he will not be called any longer the fool noble. So when has that ever happened? When have fools who deny God or deny what belongs to God been called noble? When has this ever happened? I mean, I've never seen it. And the rogue, and that's, this is a hopox, uh, legomenon. Um, do you know what hopox legomenon is? One time word. But this one occurs twice in this passage. So it's a Tupac's legomenon. All right. This word here is translated rogue. When I read through, I was like, let's find out what that word is. This is the kalei. Kalei or kilei and uh, kilai. And he will not speak or he will not be said. Uh, Hebrew students, this is the nifal. We're right, headed right into it. Slam into the nifal stem here in a couple of weeks. Um, 
he will not be said to be um, generous or a, a, a synonym for noble, magnanimous, uh, open with the poor. He will not be said to be generous. So what, what's going to happen is that fools won't be called wise. And rogues, people that oppress the poor, are not going to be called the blessing to the poor. And that's exactly what uh, Isaiah is saying, as we'll see in verse uh, 6, 7, and 8. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart does wickedness, Asa, to do. His heart does wickedness. To do godlessness and to speak toward God error, to keep unsatisfied the soul of the hungry to drink from, and drink from the thirsty to withhold. Okay, I know it's, it's interlinear. Y'all are, it's, we're late in the hour and I know it's warm in here. He says, for this fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. Okay, do you need to go? Don't say any more words. Except amen. You can say amen, okay? That's it. Yes, sir? All right. Be quiet. All right. So this is my interlinear translation. And the reason I have to do it if I'm doing Hebrew poetry is I want to see what the connections are that he makes in the verse. Now look at it with me. Just study it for a second. Here at the end, I'm asking you to do something that's kind of a beginning activity. Look at that slide up there and see what things go together. I'll give you a, a hint. For example, right here. This word speaks. Look for it again. Where does speak happen? The fool speaks folly. To speak toward God error. It's the same Hebrew word because I'm translating it to, to do that. Same, same. All right. Does wickedness do godlessness? Now, see, if I want to make, clean that up for English readers and say incline toward wickedness, that sounds good, but it's not the Hebrew word. And so you lose the poetry. I don't know how to do this with an, a static English Bible translation, but um, it probably should be done. All right, to keep unsatisfied the soul of the hungry and so the hungry don't get fed and the thirsty don't get to get a drink. Okay, so these are rhymes. But here's what it looks like when I put it in colors. The fool speaks folly and his heart does wickedness to do godlessness and to speak toward God error. Now, what, look at this. What do you call this again? When you have the, the, the order inverted? It's a chiasm. It's very clearly one of those things because speaking, uh, folly, speak toward God, error. These are the same thing, folly and error toward God. These, that's the dumbest thing you can do. The fool said in his heart, there's no God, right? All right, so what's in the middle? The doing of wickedness, the doing of godlessness. This is speech on the outside. This is action on the inside. And we're talking about governance, aren't we? Aren't we talking about the fools being in control and charge and being called noble? What they say is important, but what they do is more important. And a lot of times we can't really tell what they're doing because we're so busy listening to what they're saying. But the focus here is the wickedness and godliness of, godlessness of the fool's actions. I underlined fool and his heart because it's from the heart that come the wickedness in their actions in the hands. All right, let's do this one. To keep unsatisfied, to withhold, these are obviously the same ideas. The soul of the hungry, drink from the thirsty. These are, these are the people that are suffering. This is the poor, the hungry and thirsty. All right? The fool resists his obligation to care for those under his charge. But he's called noble. And people are sick of it. Now, here's what happens. 
Satan likes to get us thinking that we're going to fix this. And I think God is going to fix this. And he might give us a reprieve and let us have a break from the foolishness. I'd say it would start like this country started. It would be one heart at a time, one believer at a time. You have an aggregation of believers make righteous choices. Until you have that, I expect more trouble. I expect more cursing. I am not looking forward to the next presidential administration. I'm not looking forward to it. I, I'm not looking forward, in, however it turns out, I'm looking forward to Jesus coming and setting up his kingdom. And the more I read here and the more I look out there, the more I'm, I'm more comfortable here. And I'm not calling anyone specifically a fool. But I will say that the fool is doing wickedness and he's speaking folly and he is oppressing those that he's supposed to to provide for. When I say provide for, I don't mean the government provides your needs, but it should provide a a stable basis in which you can serve God with your resources. And that's what we thought when we founded our country. The Calais, okay, look right here, the thinking caps. I'm going to squeeze every minute out of this hour. Calais, K-Lai, this letter, this squiggle here is the same as this squiggle here. This squiggle here is the same as that squiggle there. That's a cough, a lamed, a yod, a yod. It's the same consonants twice. And you would never see that in English. But the rogue is translated, is the translating this word, kelai. It's the only other time it's used in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. And we don't have a lot of other texts that have it either. And then this word, we know what this word is, a kali. That's a weapon or an instrument. We'll translate a weapon here. His, his weapons. And so the theory is that this is a play, this word for this rogue is a play on the word for weapon. I once had a, 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 for a short stint, we tried out a German shepherd. I loved that dog and uh, was not capable of having him with children at the same time for multiple reasons while trying to sell a house while I dug up the yard. And uh, we, we had a lady uh, that we were able to, to give him to. But, um, but when, when Krista first saw uh, my German shepherd she said, he looks like a gun on, with fur. <laughs> I said, I know, isn't he pretty? <laughs> and she agreed, and uh, she was right. And um, um, we didn't name him Glock or something. We named him uh, Shepherd. But um, uh, th- this word rogue is, is, seems to be a play on the word weapons, the person that is an armament. And it, it, uh, rogue is fine. Uh, if your Bible has a different noun here, it's, it's kind of a, an academic guess what to say here, but it's based on the word for weapons. The person that's characterized as a weapon, his weapons are evil. His wicked schemes, I'm sorry, he wicked schemes devises. Y'all want to read some Shakespeare? He wicked schemes devises. He devises wicked schemes. To destroy the afflicted with words of falsehood, even when he speaks the needy one justice. Okay, what is that doing there? Let's close it down here. The noble, oh, wait, wait. Let's, let's close it down here with this one. The afflicted and the needy one are the same category. And he uses words of falsehood to destroy people. Meaning, he's in a position of rulership. And he uses his lies to get policies that hurt people. This is, the, this is what wicked government does. It always does. It did it in all the left-wing stuff. It did it with, uh, with, with, with any time you put socialism in it, it's going to do this. And you're, you're, well, we're trying to take care of the poor. 
Why do you vote the way you do? Because they care about the, the poor man. They're, they're for the common man. Are they? Do their policies do that? It seems like you should think um, about the, the decisions that you're making. He, dis, he, he devises, devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with words of falsehood. And notice the, contra, the, the contrast, even when the needy one speaks justice. So he, the, the needy is in the right. The, the rogue in power is in the wrong, speaking falsehood. And so it's very tight that he's devising wicked schemes. But the contrast, the rhyme, is actually in verse 8. But the noble, the nadiv, uh, makes nadivoth. <laughs> nadiv, nadivoth. The, the noble man, the one who is actually a good king. He makes, he makes or devises noble plans. And, and he, upon noble plans, arises. And I end tonight in this look at some really exciting Hebrew poetry. I end with an English rhyme by accident. But the noble, noble plans devises, and he upon noble plans arises. Kum is more arise than stands. It means to rise up. I think there's an application in this for us, and I think all of you have seen it. A lot of you have seen it through the discussion, that we're seeing sort of the opposite of what he's describing. We're seeing wickedness. We're seeing rogues and fools be called nobles and righteous. We're seeing evil called good and good called evil. We're seeing all the things, and we feel helpless more and more to address it. How do we, how will we cope? How will we deal with the indoctrination of the next generation so that they will be completely devoid of any righteousness or truth if, if, God, if God's enemy has his way, if the culture continues to slide? Um, what do what we do? Well, the promise here in the passage is that the king is coming. That's our song, right? The king is coming. And until he does, I think we should be fairly cynical. Uh, sorry, extremely cynical about what we're going to do to fix it. I think, and I'm not just here to, to, to be a wet blanket and say, wow, wow, you know, it's all bad. It is. And, you know, throw, throw me in the dryer, I guess, but it's bad. And it's not going to get fixed by all the sociology and all the other things that the king's horses and king's men try to do. It's not going to get fixed until the king fixes it. So what do you do? So what's the application? Well, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You've got a coming kingdom to look forward to. Well, what about now? I mean, that's there and then. Am I supposed to put on my, my robe and go up on the mountain and wait for the credit card bills to roll in? Like, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and our stated mission that Jesus has given us very explicitly is to go make disciples of the nations. Just as sure as the apostles who wrote the New Testament the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ are our, uh, our, our leaders who, who, through their writings, are still exerting an influence of leadership and direction for us. And so we have our New Testament. Amen? Just as sure as we're apostolic and therefore Christian, we are about that great commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And that is how you relate to the kingdom today. The people that become believers going to be there. The people that grow spiritually to put on Christ and live out their spiritual lives to make more disciples are part of this ruling cadre. And those who 
however it works in Romans 8, who suffer together with Christ so they be glorified together with him, are joint heirs with him. That's our destiny. That's what we're headed toward, and so that's what we're about. So it's not, it's not uh, polishing the, 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 the brass on the, the sinking ship. It's saving as many people on the sinking ship as we can to get where we're going, to bring them with us. And, and it may be that we're in the bus. The school bus, when it misses, when you miss the school bus, if that school bus driver has a little bit of grace, he may come back and circle back around the block and come back and see you waving your hand, you came out. Maybe that's what we are. Maybe we're that school bus that's coming around one more time. Hey, get on. Maybe it's like in the days of Noah where we're preaching, where we're saying, here it is, the, it's gonna rain soon. And a few can come to know Christ. Maybe that's what God is doing with us here in Connecticut in this time. But, um, but that's okay. Until the Lord comes to, to catch us up and says index, end of exercise, we need to be about, be about his work. Our Father, we thank you for this awesome privilege to know you through Isaiah, what he wrote, to know uh, your plan and your purpose, and, and to think about the glorious future that's ours. Father, we are... <sighs> We're humbled at the thought that you're going to use us this way to be part of the administration under your son. And when we think of that and we look into the word and it shows us who we are, Father, we take the warning of James very seriously. We don't want to go away from this and think and forget what it says about us. We have a glorious destiny and it takes training now. We need to be serious about the work because we need to grow up to do that adult work. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.